Right, time to grab Bibles. And uh, we're back on, on the demonology uh, series. Um, just want to say that last study we had, all right, you'll remember, was a bit laborious. There were loads and loads of scriptures in it. And if you remember as well, the first one was a little bit like that. Uh, now, I know that sort of like that doesn't necessarily make for an exciting, entertaining Bible study. I'm aware of that. But I want to emphasize that the reason that I took that approach early on in this series, now we won't need to go back to it, all right, is precisely because I wanted to make sure that everyone had all the scriptures at their command, all right? Precisely so that everyone can be making their own minds up. I'm very aware in teaching on this subject, we're going very much, or I'm going very much against the grain of what is being taught today in spirit-filled circles. And, uh, and obviously, all I want to do is to chuck the scriptures out, okay, so that you've got them there, and make up your own minds. And I'll be the first to say, if you disagree with me, fine, no problem, all right? So I want to emphasize that. And as always, it's no good just accepting things because someone you know is saying them, you know, that it's, it's all got to be sorted out in your own mind, i.e. you've got to be convinced that what I'm saying is what the Bible actually says. So you've got all the data, all the scriptures, etc., etc. So that's the first thing. I know that sometimes it's hard work, it's laborious, but it's important, all right, that you really grab it for yourselves and make your own minds up about it. And just something else, in this series I've named names, all right, people who are teaching what I contend to be false doctrine. In some instances, quite serious, false doctrine, all right? Uh, I've mentioned Bill Sabritsky, Derek Prince, uh, Frank Hammond as well. Now, let me say as well that to disagree with someone is not to make a personal judgment on them. So what I have said in this series is that here are certain men whom I contend are teaching erroneously on this subject. I want to emphasize that to do that is not a personal attack on their integrity. Um, I mean, if if someone came up to me, or if I heard that you know someone was saying, well, Beresford he teaches this, that, and the other, and he's wrong. I mean, I wouldn't feel that was a personal attack on me. I mean, you know, if they're saying we don't agree, what's the problem? So I want to make that clear. The fact that every now and then I'll say, well, I believe so and so is teaching something that is wrong is not necessarily making a comment on them as individuals or their integrity in following the Lord. It's simply making a statement that I disagree with what they're teaching and uh, I'm trying to indicate you why, uh, indicate to you why I don't agree. Uh, but it is not in any way a personal attack. I am not casting aspersions on anyone's discipleship at all. And that's important to understand as well. Uh, you know, it's important that we learn to agree to differ. And that if someone gets the ump just because someone disagrees with them, that's really silly. That's really silly, all right. Now then, what we've established so far in the first three talks are what evil spirits are. We've seen that they're fallen angels. Uh, <coughs> and we've, we've had a look at some of the basic errors that I'm maintaining are being taught today. Although we will be back to that later, we will keep coming back to false teachings, but the mainstay of it, we've done. <coughs> now, what we're gonna do today is we're gonna start to actually 
move on to looking at what the Bible teaches in regards to people having evil spirits and actually setting them free. Now, next time we will have the first of three studies specifically on the question, how do you know if someone has evil spirits and if they have, how do you get the things out, all right? Bit of a bridge study though tonight. We're getting onto there, but something that we've got to cover first. And it's this, it's the emotive idea of people being possessed, whether by the devil himself, by Satan, or whether by evil spirits. And the reason we've got to do this is because many Christians use that language of evil spirits. They talk about people being possessed. And indeed, as we've gone through various scriptures, in past studies, uh, my very own Bible that I use, the Revised Standard Version, uses that terminology. We've seen it, haven't we? That, you know, the crowds brought to Jesus people who are possessed with evil spirits, all right? And uh, so we've got to address this. We've got to get the terminology right. My Bible, this version of the Bible, talks in terms of people being possessed by demons. Many Christians speak in those terms, talking about people being possessed. And it's a very emotive idea, it's a very powerful word, isn't it, when linked with evil spirits. And what I want to show you tonight, um, one basic thing, but other important things come from it, is that the idea of being possessed by evil spirits is totally at odds with what the Bible teaches. And this is a very important and fundamental point that we dispense with once and for all any notion of people being possessed and all the connotations that come with that, all right? And I'm going to show you that the fact that my Bible talks about people being possessed is purely bad translation. It's Bible translators who haven't done their job properly. And thankfully, you'll find in your more modern translations, NIV, etc., etc., that you won't find the word possessed at all, all right? Now, let's actually start with this. We're asking, can you be possessed by evil spirits? Now, the New Testament was written in Greek, so we've got to immediately ask, what is the Greek verb to possess, all right? What is the Greek word for that? The Greek word for to possess, the verb, is huparko, all right? And its meaning in the Greek is exactly the same as the corresponding meaning of the word to possess in English. And it's simply this, to have as one's own and therefore to control and dominate, all right? That's what the idea of to possess means. It means to have as one's own and therefore to control and dominate. Go to Acts chapter 4. Acts chapter 4 and verse 32. Acts chapter 4, verse 32. We actually see this word, huparko. And, uh, and this is about the very communal nature of the early church, the way they shared everything and have everything in common. And in Acts 4, verse 32, it says, Now the company of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things which he possessed was his own, but they had everything in common. Now there is the word huparko, all right? Another Greek verb for possess is peripoesis. 
And that specifically means a possession which is a purchased acquisition, all right? So if you've gone and bought something from a shop, that is a peripoiesis, all right? A purchased acquisition, you possess it, okay? So that is the Greek word to possess, huparko and peripoiesis. And it means to have as one's own and therefore to control and to dominate. So when my Bible, the RSV, refers to people being possessed by an evil spirit, what we've got to ask is what is the Greek word translated in that way? I, in my version of the Bible, when the English translation talks about someone being possessed by evil spirits, what is the Greek word there being used by the Bible writers? Well, it's the same verb in every instance, all right? And it's not huparko, and it's not peripoiesis, all right? The word is daimonizomai, all right? Daimonizomai. Every time in the RSV, when you get this phrase or a reference to people being possessed by evil spirits, it is always daimonizomai. Now, we've seen in Talk 1 that daimon is simply the Greek word for demon, all right? And daimonizomai simply means to be demonized, to be affected in whatever way by demons or evil spirits, call them what you will, all right? Now, there's an adjective that's related to it that the Bible uses, and it's daimoniodes, and that simply means proceeding from or resembling a demon. In other words, it's demonic, all right? That's literally what it's demonic. If something is demonic, it's daimoniodes, proceeding from or resembling a demon or an evil spirit. Just go to, to Mark, and I'll just show you just one, one such example of uh, where, where my Bible gets this <coughs> totally wrong. And it's Mark chapter 1 and verse 32. And this is just an example of various other such verses, all right? But we only need to see one. Mark chapter 1, <coughs> verse 32. Now, the Revised Standard Version reads thus. That evening, <coughs> yeah, speaking of Jesus, that evening at sundown, they brought to him all who were sick or possessed with demons. Now, what is the word there translated possessed? Is it huparko? No, it's not. Is it peripoiesis? No, it's not. It's daimonizomai, all right? And that simply what you've got here, a far better translation would be those with evil spirits or those who were demonised. Uh, has someone got a modern translation open at that verse they could read out? Which translation is that? Right, okay. That's the NIV. Does, has anyone else got the NIV? Has the NIV got this wrong? Yeah, the New King James Version would be incorrect, as is the Revised Standard Version. Has anyone got an NIV? It says demon, well, crikey, I mean, you know, I, I thought the, the new translations had, had sorted this out. Obviously, they haven't. The Greek verb here is daimonizomai, and it means to be demonized. It does not mean possessed with demons. It literally means that evening at sundown, they brought to him all were, who were sick or demonized or who had demons. Now that is the correct translation from the Greek.
So we can see here immediately that this idea of being possessed by evil spirits is one that has got to go out of our thinking, all right? Now, there are two things here that come from this, and they're fundamental to our understanding of the nature of demonization. And it is important to understand the nature of this thing, because a lot of Christians, and including non-Christians, have the strangest idea about what having evil spirits entails, what it means, and what it actually does, all right? Right, now then, firstly, to possess means to own and control. So, when you get people thinking in terms of being possessed by evil spirits, it conjures up the idea of to own and to control. I mean, it's like Blinder and I possess our car. It is our possession. Our car gets very little say in what happens to it. We control it and dominate it totally. We do that with our sofa. It gets very little say in anything that happens to it. In fact, it gets no say at all. The armchairs, can you see? We possess them. We own them and we therefore control them. We do what we like with our possessions. If you possess something, it is yours to do with what you want and it has no say in it because it is controlled and dominated by you. Now let me tell you that nothing could be further from the truth when it comes to someone having evil spirits. Alright? And we have got to get rid of this idea that if people have got evil spirits, that they are being controlled by the indwelling evil spirits virtually as if the evil spirits owned them, like Blinge and I do our car. You know, I mean, our car, if we're driving, if, you know, if we turn the steering wheel to the left, it goes to the left, is it? Now, we've got to make sure that we get rid of this idea that if evil spirits are in someone, that they're working them, rather like Harry Corbett's hand does Sooty. Yeah. You know, Sooty is a glove puppet, isn't he? And Harry Corbett's hand was up him, all right? And Sooty only did what Harry Corbett's hand did. Sooty was possessed by Harry Corbett. Now, nothing could be further from the truth in regards to evil spirits. And the reason for this is twofold, all right? We're going to knock this on the head tonight. Number one, people have free will which has been given to them by God, all right? I.e., we are made in the image of God. Now, whether someone is a Christian or a non-Christian or whatever, everyone has been made in the image, in the likeness of God. That means that we are like God. Now, we're fallen, so no longer are we holy. Adam and Eve were once holy like God, all right? But one of the things that we share with God is that God has free will. Like when God said, let there be light, and there was light, that is free will. God has ultimate free will. He has infinite free will. Uh, I mean, we've got free will. But we can't just say, uh, you know, I want to turn this piece of wood into gold. I mean, because we don't have the power to go with our free will. But God, he has free will. He has infinite power. So, therefore, God can do exactly what he likes. Now, in a lesser measure, 
we share that aspect of God. We have free will. Think about it. If it was true that people who were demonized were possessed by demons, you would then have people who no longer have free will, and you're talking absolute nonsense, right? So the first point to grasp, and I'm showing you why this whole ethos surrounding this word possession is wrong, all right? And the first reason it's wrong is because men and women have free will. Now, the second reason it's wrong is quite simply this. Evil spirits, including Satan himself, have no power whatsoever to take that free will away from people. I.e., what we're going to see is that Satan and evil spirits aren't anything like as powerful as many Christians think they are. So what we've seen is that, one, we have free will, and a demonized person has free will, and two, Satan and evil spirits cannot take that free will away from them. Now, I want to explain this a bit further, all right, where it's going to get a little bit tricky here, all right, because I want you to understand a concept, all right, so bear with me, all right? <clears throat> Let me explain it like this. Obviously, if you're stronger than me, or you have a gun, you could take my car away against my will. You could even take me away against my will. You could kidnap me if you were stronger than me or if you had a gun, which would make you stronger than me, all right? Now, to that extent, you can go against my free will. To that extent, you can rob me of my free will. But what I want to get to you is that the important thing about free will is not free will in regards to circumstances, but free will in regards to moral choice. That's what counts, all right? So you can take away my car, you can even take me away, kidnap me if you're stronger than me, all right? But what you can't do, no matter how much stronger you are than me, no matter, you might have a chieftain tank pointing at me. What you can't do is you cannot make me sin against God if I don't want to. Can you see? Because circumstances only dictate to your bodily situation. All right? So, for instance, you can beat me up, you can steal my money, but what you can't do, you can't make me resent you for it. You can't make me hate you for it. If I do, that is purely down to me. Now, are you getting the point? You can lose your free will externally in the sense of being overpowered, all right? But your response to any situation like that is purely down to you. If I have a gun, I can hold you up and take your car away, but I cannot make you hate me for it and want revenge. If you end up hating me and wanting revenge, that is purely down to you. I didn't do that. That is your response. Now, are you starting to get the point? So, what we're seeing in relation, all right, in a situation like that, in relation to what's happening to me, say if you kidnap me or beat me up, in relation to what's happening to me circumstance-wise, you are my problem. You're overpowering me. But, 
in relation to whether I sin or not in that situation, my problem is the same as it always is, with or without you overpowering me. My problem is my own sinful nature. Now, are you getting the point? In regards to sin, I, and I alone, am my biggest problem. And in regards to sin, you and you alone are your biggest problem, all right? So, what does this tell us? It tells us basically this, that demons cannot make people do things that they are not already capable of and willing to do. Now, I'll say that again. Demons cannot make people do things they are not already capable of and already willing to do, all right? And what we're going to see is that having demons in you is going to affect you, in a sense that in the same way that if someone kidnapped you, yes, that would affect you. Demons have strength. They can affect you, all right? But what we're going to see is that when it comes to committing sin, and this is the important point, there's not a demon in the universe that can make anyone commit any sin at all. Because if we ever sin, we do so because we decided to do it. It can never be said that someone else has made us sin. So demons cannot make anyone do things that they are not already capable of and already willing to do. Now what they can do is that if someone's got demons in them, demons can incite you to take whatever's in your heart maybe a bit further than you would have done if they weren't there inciting you. But what they can't do is make you do anything that you're unwilling to do. Take the example of being in a crowd. Um, I mean, let's, let's say, I mean, up at um, Trafalgar Square last year, the big protest against the poll tax, right? Now, there were many, many people there who were there to protest the poll tax because they think it's wrong, right? But it ended up in a riot. Now, the reason it ended up as a riot, or certainly one of the reasons, was because there were people in that crowd who wanted to turn it into a riot. Now, if I'd have been in that crowd, although you wouldn't have got me in a crowd, so I think public demos like that are asking for trouble anyway, all right, no matter how just the cause, and I mean the cause was just, all right. But had I been in that crowd, all right, <coughs> I'm there to protest the poll tax. There are other people there, not just to protest the poll tax, but they want anarchy, they want a riot, okay? They want to turn it into an anti-authority, anti-establishment, anti-police thing. Now the point is, the moment I see trouble coming, I can turn and go. I can get out of there. Now what it tells me is this, those people there wanting to incite people to riot cannot incite people to riot who are not willing to riot. You see the point? They can't make you do it. So the moral decision is I'm going. However, there were other people who remained and they didn't go there intending to riot, but they ended up rioting. They took the bait and they got carried along with it. But they were people with riot and anarchy and lawlessness already in their hearts. Can you see the point? Because if it hadn't have been, they'd have got out. Can you see? So therefore, the presence of demons inside of someone may well incite them to take 
sins already in their heart further than they might have done otherwise. But what they cannot do is incite someone to do something <laughs> that they are completely unwilling to do. <coughs> Example, there are many people who would not murder. They might do lots of other wrong things, but they wouldn't murder. There's a line in their heart. Can you see? They would not murder someone. There are many people like that, thank heavens. Now, if such a person had a demon inside of them, that demon could never, ever get them to commit a murder. Can you see? However, someone who would never commit murder is still capable of resentment and bitterness. So a demon could really amplify that. But the demon couldn't make someone or incite someone or coerce someone to do something that they are not already willing to do and might even well eventually end up doing even if the demon wasn't there. Think of it like this. Think of it like getting drunk, okay? Now, a demon that's affecting you, if you've got a demon inside of you, okay, um, that demon can get you behaving in a general way that you wouldn't normally, rather like dr drink can, I mean, get you like rowdy or something like that. But it can't, and again, like getting drunk, it can't actually bring something out of you that isn't already there. Can you see? Now, some people, when they get drunk, they get violent. Now, is the drink making them violent? Well, to answer that question, let me put to you that there are many, many other people who, when they get drunk, aren't violent. Can you see? But they might become e even more excessively immoral than they are when they're sober. Can you see? So if you get drunk, drunkenness is not going to make you do something that you're not already capable of. You're not going to get a situation where someone who doesn't have murder in their heart gets drunk and ends up murdering. It's not going to happen. And it's exactly the same with demons. I.e. drink cannot bring something out of you that isn't already there. And demons cannot get you to do anything that is not already there in your heart. Uh, when we were doing the Philippians study, I gave you the first ever hi-fi example in a Bible study that I've ever given. I'm going to give you the second one now, all right, because it's a good one. Think of it like this, and I used the word earlier, amplify. Think of a demon like an amplifier. Now, in a hi-fi setup, you've got a record deck, you've got an amplifier, and you've got the speakers. Now, I'm saying make the demon like an amplifier because all the amplifier does it takes something coming out of the record deck a little signal and it amplifies it makes it bigger and louder feeds it into the speakers all right now here's the point a demon may well amplify something that's already in your heart if there's immorality in your heart the demon might incite you amplify it make it bigger than it was if it wasn't there all right but nevertheless that person is still an immoral person the demon is merely amplifying it i.e. an amplifier simply amplifies the signal coming out of the groove of the record. Now here's the point. If you've got a record deck playing the 1812 symphony, there is no way that the amplifier can think, no, I don't like this, and suddenly arrange for, the, uh, for Chuck Mangione to come out of the speakers. <laughs> can you see? That's exactly like that. An amplifier can only work on a signal that it's being given from the source. 
Now, in the same way a demon, if a demon or if demons are in someone, they can only work on and amplify something that is being fed already from the person themselves. So, a demon as an amplifier can't take the record deck of your heart, see immorality there, and think, no, I'll turn it into murder, is he? It can, an amplifier can only amplify the signal it's being fed, i.e. the demon does not decide the sin that it's being fed. It will just work on whatever is already there in your heart. Now, are you getting the fundamental point here, all right? It's tremendously important to understand Evil spirits cannot make people they demonise do anything that that person would not be willing and prepared to do, even if they weren't demonised. Okay. <laughs> now, some important things come out of this. The first thing, and I said this earlier, evil spirits, and even Satan himself, they do not have anything like the power that people accredit they do not have the power that even many Christians think that they have. They simply can't do it. Demons can only work with what you <laughs> give them. If I had demons inside of me, they could only work on what my sinful nature is providing them. They can't come in and turn me into what they want. It's my decision what I'm going to be. Can you see? They may be chummy-chummy with me and, oh yeah, guys, it's brilliant, you know what? Oh, you're gonna get drunk tonight? Right, let's get drunk every night next week then, all right? They can amplify, but they cannot originate. So they do not have the power that people think they have. And secondly, demons can never be used as an excuse for what people do. The statement, well, a demon made me do it, I was demonized, is an absolute nonsense. Alright? I used to have demons. When I became a Christian, I needed demons cast out of me. But I never did anything that demons made me do. Is he? I got them because of what I was doing, but they didn't make me do anything at all. So demons are never an excuse for anything at all. And this is why, and we're going to see this later on as we go through the series, this is why the epistles, now in the epistles, like you've got Paul and you've got Peter and you've got James, the epistles, as opposed to the gospels, really home in on the whole thing, right, you're Christians, so how do you live your daily Christian life, all right? Now, one of the things that we find in them is that Paul and Peter are virtually silent about demons. There's nothing there. Now, if demons were the problem, you'd expect there to be loads and loads and loads about demons. There isn't. But what is there loads and loads and loads about? Our sinful natures. What are all the warnings in the epistles to us as Christians about? Are they about demons? No, they're about our sinful natures, all right? So demons, even in people who are demonised, can never, ever be made an excuse because that person isn't doing anything that demons are making them doing. Not in the slightest. Demons can amplify. They cannot originate in any way at all. All right. Um, and what this tells us is that demons haven't got half the power that we think they have and that people have free will 
all right? What it tells us is that if someone is found out to be affected by demons in whatever way, if demons are in them, they can be cast out. As simple as that. We have power over evil spirits. It is not the slightest bit true that evil spirits can have power over us. We have power over evil spirits. Now, think of it like this, because we're dealing with the question, all right, I said at the beginning, <coughs> demons cannot affect someone's free will in any way at all, all right? Now, just think about what would the situation be if demons can have power over people's free will, i.e. that if demons get into someone and they're demonised, what would be the situation if the demons took away their free will and, and possessed them and owned them and controlled them, all right? Well, what it means is this. It would then be impossible, it would be absolutely impossible for, for instance, anyone who was demonised to become a Christian. Because if demons can affect your free will, therefore if someone's got demons in them and demons can affect their free will, what would be the most important thing that the demons would do in regards to their free will? Stop them coming to Jesus. So how is it that I became a Christian? How is it that Robert became a Christian? Because demons have no say in people's free will at all. Can you see? They are defenceless before the free will of the people even in whom they are in. If evil spirits could control people, then you can be sure that the one thing they'd never permit those people to do is to become Christians. But here we see demons to be utterly and totally helpless. If someone has it in their heart to follow the Lord, in response to the Holy Spirit working in them and drawing them to become a disciple of Jesus, then I'll say this, if that person had every evil spirit in existence in them, plus Satan himself, that person would still be completely free to become a Christian. Even if someone had the entire demonic realm indwelling them, Satan, with all his minions put together, would be helpless to prevent that person becoming a Christian if the person wanted to. Because demons cannot affect your free will. One of my favourite stories was of a, a Satanist uh, and, and, and there were sort of like some evangelistic things going on in, in her area and, and she was sent by Satan to go and disrupt this meeting as a guy preaching the gospel. And here she was, she was sent by Satan to disrupt the meeting. She became a Christian. Now, there is Satan's power. Now, wh what is there to, to tremble about before that? What is there to be frightened of before that? That Satan sent one of his, his, his disciples along to a meeting to bust it up, and the result was they became a Christian. Are you seeing how powerless Satan and evil spirits actually are. And this is vital for us to actually get hold of. Now that helps us to understand the true nature of demonization, which is the biblical word for it, as opposed to all the false ideas conjured up by the notion of demon possession, which is not a biblical idea in the slightest.
And in regards to it, one of the, you know, I mean, put this down as a fundamental, uh, a foundational truth of this series. When it comes to demonology, think Bible, not Hollywood. And many Christians, their concept of Satan and demons and, and demonization, I mean, you know, it's, it's more, they've got it more from the video shop than they have the Bible. Fair enough, but I mean, test everything, even videos. <laughs> test them by the Bible. So, so that's that. That's the first thing. It shows us, you know, the true nature of demonization. How, how really powerless these these things are. But a second thing that comes out of here is that the fact that Bible merely speaks of demonization dispenses as well with um, another idea that you find going around in various books, which is completely unbiblical, all right? And there are many, many books you get and teachers that you hear, and when it comes to demonization and stuff like that, they've got kind of clear-cut varying stages of the problem, all right? Uh, for instance, they've got oppression, now, there's one category, and it's kind of fairly down the bottom of the ladder, all right? And then you've got obsession, and this is kind of a bit further up, and it leads up to the biggie, possession, is it? <laughs> and they've got all these clear-cut different stages, and of course, you know, sort of like they've got, you know, the different ministries that you meet each stage with. You know, so you're sort of like sitting now, someone here, they're demonised. Now, hang on, wait, wait a minute, flick, flick, which chapter is this? No, it's not obsession. Um, oh yeah, yeah, it's um, it's possession, right? So what do I do? You know, can you see the, these manuals which diagnose which stage it's at, and then they they give you. I mean, throw all that away. The Bible simply talks about demonization. The whole thing is just lumped together. All right, um, in 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 the overall category of people being demonized all right so kind of diagnosing stages and bringing to bear the relevant ministry and and, and stuff like that um, that's that, that's not the way at all however we do need to see that demonization does have degrees all right uh, that some people can end up uh, demonized in a worse way than someone else all right now this can be seen purely in the following all right let's um you know sort of like we've already seen the gadarene demoniac haven't we this this guy you know the one who could break chains the incredible hulk all right um <coughs> now the demons in him called themselves legion now it's quite irrelevant to jesus as we saw he just called them unclean spirits you know but these demons called themselves legion and it was a pretty bad case wasn't it this blow obviously was pretty badly demonized okay now if there's any truth in what the demons said and i'm not saying this because of the demons but because of the extent of the power that this bloke had but if there's any truth in the fact legion you're talking here about someone who had upward of six thousand demons in him now, that's a pretty extreme case of demonization, isn't it? So there we definitely see one extreme. And incidentally, when you get all these manuals and all these deliverance books, where you have to do it one at a time, can you imagine settling down one evening with a gathering demoniac? <laughs> you know, can you imagine? I mean, how could they have done it? They didn't have computers then, you see, with their calculators, that's number... 
Yeah, <laughs> crazy, you know. But anyway, this guy, the Gadarene demoniac, that here is someone he is seriously demonised. I mean, you know, he's, we're not talking one or two here, are we? I mean, but a very, very extreme case. Let me say as well, though, in regards to him, if demons could control free will, what's this bloke doing becoming a Christian? Can you see? It proves the point, doesn't it? If 6,000 demons plus between them can't stop someone becoming a Christian, I mean, what power do they have? I'll tell you. Zip. The power that matters, zip. Because what matters is our free moral choice before God. So 6,000 of these things couldn't stop this. He saw Jesus, he ran to him, and he fell down at his feet and worshipped him. And then within a few minutes he was free. I've got a feeling if Jesus had done all 6,001 at a time, that chapter might have been a bit longer. But it isn't, it's fairly short. Okay? So, you know, there you've got it. So, one, one extreme. And let me say as well, this is incredibly rare. The Gadarene demoniac. I mean, it's the one example of that kind of demonization in the entire Bible. Now, doesn't that make you suspicious? of leaders and ministers who hit up against it at virtually every meeting. Can you see how lunatic it is? There is one example of someone demonised to this degree in the Bible. And yet other people, they seem, you know, their whole lives are spent meeting people like the Gathering Demoniac. It's lunatic. Now, I'm not saying that there aren't people out there like this. There are. I'm not saying we're never going to meet it, but statistically it's one in a million. It's one in a million. We might, but let's not think there's something drastically wrong with us if we don't. All right. So there's a bloke, 6,000 plus odd, or mega demonised, if you see what I mean. Um, also, the Bible tells us, now Mary Magdalene, the Bible tells us that Jesus cast seven spirits out of her. So she's not, not, not quite in the gathering demoniac league, is she? But, you know, seven as opposed to an unclean spirit. Can you, I'm just showing you there are degrees. You know, sort of like, you know, there's a numbers thing in regards to this. Not that the Bible puts any, you know, kind of great, um, you know, sort of emphasis on numbers, but I'm just showing you there are uh, degrees of it. Um, and then in Acts 16, 16, we saw the girl with the divination spirit, the old python spirit, and we explained that, didn't we? Um, you know, and she clearly just had this one spirit, and she was running after Paul, yelling and screaming religious things. Um, you know, so it looks like she just had one, okay. Um, you know, so there you've got degrees. But now we've got to come on the the fundamental rock-bottom truth is this, and, and we will have a Bible study on this in a, a couple of weeks' time, quite specifically. Um, the majority, the vast majority of demonised people, you would not have the foggiest idea that they were demonised. There is absolutely nothing about them to suggest that they are demonised. The problem here are thousands of Christians across the world who believe that behind every twitch lies a demon. Behind every stutter lies a demon. You know, behind every, you know, lit cigarette lies a demon. Um, now, I mean, the point is, the Bible, as we're going to see, tells us that God has provided a specific spiritual gift called the ability to distinguish or discern between spirits. And let me ask you, if 
demonization was always obvious, like the gathering demoniac, why would there be a gift of discernment? Why would one need a supernatural revelation from God to show that someone is demonized if demonization is always dramatic and supernatural and obvious? It's not. And we're going to be on that in more detail um, in later studies. But certainly, we've on the one hand, we've got the gathering demoniac, mega extreme example. Mary Magdalene, for instance, with seven. Uh, the slave girl with the spirit of divination, the old python thing. It looks like she had one, um, as it were. But we got the vast majority of people who are demonized. You wouldn't even know they had a demon. And we know this because there's a gift of discernment. I mean, after all, if someone's sitting in front of you, you know, breaking chains, you know, he's sitting there, he's got, you know, sort of like, you know, two in, and bang! You know, and we're sitting here, oh, Lord, is this demonization? Lord, just show us, grant, grant us discernment, Lord. Oh, it's crazy, isn't it? So the vast majority of people, you wouldn't even know they were demonized because there's, all, there's nothing to actually give it away. But it is demonization nevertheless. All right. And the question we're going to ask now, and it's a logical question to move on to before next time we start on how do you know if demons are in people and if they are, how do you get them out? The questions we've got to ask now is this. We've seen that there's demonization. Demons get inside people. So it only seems logical to ask the question, right, how do demons get inside people then? Why is it that demons get in there in the first place? How do demons, how do you actually get demons? Sort of roll up, get your demons here, you know. How do you get demons? Where do you go? Are there shops or what? All right. <laughs> now, now you'd think, you'd think, because when I said, how do demons get inside people? I saw everyone go for their pens. And I understand that. Because you'd think that this was a vitally important question, wouldn't you? That if we understood this, what a step forward it would be. So surely, I mean, to find out, to understand what the Bible tells us about how it is that demons get inside people would be a real step forward, wouldn't it? Well, I've got to tell you um, that the Bible says next to nothing about this. It just does not answer the question. The Bible is not concerned in answering the question that we've just asked. The Bible concentrates entirely when it comes to this area, not on how demons got in there, but the Bible concentrates on if they're in there, how do you get them out, you see? So the question, how do you get demons, fundamentally, will forever remain unanswered because the Bible doesn't tell us. However, there are just one or two things in there that give us a clue, but a clue is all it does give us. So what I'm going to do now for the rest of this, this study is that in answering that question, how do demons get inside, I'm going to go as far as the biblical data permits us to go without ending up in ridiculous speculation, all right? So we'll take this as far as the biblical data allows us, but it is not very far at all. It gives us a clue, but that is it.
Now, nothing of what I'm going to say now is A, B, C, you know, without fail. If this, 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 then that, that, that is going to be the result. I'm just going to show you where the Bible hints at this. Now then, if you go to Ephesians chapter 4, of particular interest this, because this is aimed specifically at Christians. <coughs> and what's interesting is that when Paul, well, obviously, the New Testament church and the Bible was written on the assumption that if people were demonised when they became Christians, i.e. the demons would be got out of them. So the assumption is, all right, that, that in, 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 in churches which are kind of, you know, moving in the Lord and biblical, uh, the whole point is that, you know, certainly if there's a Christian in the church demonised, then that's got to be an exception, not the rule. Right, it's just that God hadn't got around to it in them yet, as it were, okay. But there's a warning here to Christians, and the assumption, obviously, is that it's to undemonized Christians. Now then, Ephesians chapter 4, and we're going to start reading from verse 25. And Paul says this, because there's something here that you wouldn't dream was here until you get back to the original language, back to the Greek. <clears throat> Paul says, therefore, putting away falsehood, let everyone speak the truth with his neighbour, for we are members one of another. Be angry, but do, not, but do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. And give no opportunity to the devil. Now, in some of your translations, I take it, it says, give no place to the devil. Yep. Now, let me explain what we've got here. The word in my Bible, when it says, give no opportunity to the devil, and in the modern versions, give no place to the devil, the Greek word here is quite fascinating. The Greek word is topos, T-O-P-O-S, all right? And it means a region or a locality. Um, topography, I mean, we get words in our language from the Greek word, and topography is a branch of science, and it's the study of the surface features of a geographical area. So that, for instance, you can look at the topography of France, and what you're looking at is, uh, you know, where it goes up, where it goes down, what rocks are where, all the surface features. Uh, the topography of the moon, of, of the craters and, and, and stuff like that, all right? So topography are the surface features of a geographical area, and the word here, topos, means a region or a locality. Now, we'll have a look at a couple of other scriptures that use this word. Go to Luke, Luke chapter 2. <coughs> Luke chapter 2. And we want verse 7. Luke chapter 2 and verse 7. Uh, we actually got a bit of the Christmas story here, so we're a little bit early. Sorry about this. I asked Linda today if we could start recording our Christmas records, but she says, no, I've got to wait till the first week in December. Uh, I, I, I'm feeling Christmassy already, and this won't help, all right? Uh, Luke, Luke chapter 2 and verse 7, and this is kind of all, all the birth of Jesus. Now then, and she, that's Mary, she gave birth to her firstborn son, i.e. Jesus, and wrapped him in swaddling cloths, 
and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. There was no room for them in the inn, all right? So no place in the inn. If you went to a, a, a hotel and it's booked up, no vacancies outside, there's no place in there for you. There's no room in there for you, all right? Uh, now now go down to verse 14, all right? Still, still Luke, uh, sorry, Luke chapter 14, not verse 14. Luke chap, chapter sorry, 14. Topos, topos, yeah, exactly, yeah. The, these are the where topos, the same word, is used in, in various circumstances. So the second one, Luke 14, and we want verse 8, and uh, this was one of Jesus, you know, sort of like parables about being invited to a marriage feast. We're not interested in the import of the parable, but we want from verse 10. But when you are invited, I to a meal, go and sit in the lowest place. Topos, so that when your host comes, he may say to you, friend, go up higher. Then you will be honoured in the presence of all who sit at table with him. So there you have it. Go and sit in the lowest place, your place at table. The little bit of space that has been set aside for you, the little locality, <coughs> the chair by the table that's got your name in it, all right? So what we've got here with Topos is quite simply this a room, a bit of space, a place where you can dwell that is there for you, something you can get into, all right? <coughs> now, what Paul is saying here, and I'm back in Ephesians 4 now, he says, look, put away falsehood, speak the truth, uh, don't sin, don't let the sun go down on your anger. And then he goes on and he says, let the thief no longer steal. Uh, let no evil talk come out of your mouth. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away. Paul is talking here and he's saying to Christians who are following the law, they're born again, they're baptized with the spirit and they're demon free because the assumption is they've had any ministry like that they needed long since, all right? So he's talking to spirit-filled, demon-free Christians about sin. He's saying, look, don't do these things, all right? Don't do these things. And he gives the reason, well, not the reason, the reason we stay away from sin is because God don't like it, but he says, and give no place to the devil. Now, what Paul is saying is that sin can, even as Christians, can open a room of our life to a demonic hold. So think about it. <coughs> Let's say that there's real bitterness in your heart. All right, real bitter. It might be towards one person, but it might be bitterness in something really undealt with, really substantially undealt with area of your life that you're not willing to face up to. So there's a bit of you that is sheer bitterness or is sheer immorality. I'm not talking about things you're struggling with and repenting of here. It's not what I'm talking about, all right? But I'm talking about, you know, where you're, you're just giving in to bitterness or whatever, all right? My goodness, wouldn't a demon feel at home in that little bit of you? he think, oh yes, wallpaper's just right. Yes, yeah, nice and comfy. I could get on well here. And that is literally the picture that Paul is painting. Now, what I want to be very careful to say here is that Paul is not in the slightest bit saying, if you sin in this way, you are going to get a demon. He's not saying that, but he's saying the possibility is there. So why muck around with it? 
So I mean, very carefully, we're not saying that if there is unrepentant sin in your life, therefore you are going to end up demonized. But here, Paul gives out the warning and therefore gives out the possibility that that could be the case, all right? Remember, we're asking, how do demons get in? Well, here's one area. If Christians, and here, this is written to Christians, if spirit-filled Christians really do remain out of order with the Lord. And one of the things I'll draw your attention to here, these verses in the context that Paul is saying, give no room in your life, no place to the devil, he's talking fellowship matters. He's talking relationships with your brothers and sisters. And what we see is that if that turns sour, or if you or if I turn sour on that and really get out of fellowship over that, resentment out of fellowship with individuals and stuff like that, hatred or whatever, then the possibility is there that you could end up with a demon. So there's one scenario in which a demon might, or demons, I don't know, might get inside a believer. We're not saying it's a definite, but the possibility is there. So if the possibility is there, we can be sure of this, it does happen, and not necessarily rarely. So, there's that. Uh, let's have a look at someone in the Old Testament. Go to 1 Samuel 16. Another believer who got into trouble, old Saul, King Saul. I think Saul, Saul was a believer for something like was it 30 years and he was out of fellowship for 28 of them? Something like that. Statistically about correct today, I would have thought. Uh, 1 Samuel, I have, yeah, I've got Samuel now. 1 Samuel uh, 16. 1 Samuel 16. Now, Saul, this is the first king of Israel. He was a spirit-filled believer. In prior chapters, you'll read about the Spirit of God coming <coughs> upon him and him prophesying, and people said he's Saul also amongst the prophets. Uh, so 1 Samuel chapter 16, we'll start reading from verse 14. <coughs> Basically, Saul was a very naughty boy. He just did not do what God said. He was a rebel. Didn't matter what God said to him. God said, do it this way, Saul did it the other way. And he was one of these people that when he was challenged, he'd say, well, what... What's the problem? He was one of those sorts of Christians. Now, the spirit of the Lord departed from Saul and an evil spirit from the Lord tormented him. Bear that in mind. Bear that in mind. An evil spirit from the Lord. Still an evil spirit, but from the Lord tormented him. And Saul's servant said to him, Behold now, an evil spirit from God is tormenting you. Let our Lord now command your servants who are before you to seek out a man who is skillful in the playing the lyre, and when the evil spirit from God is upon you, he will play it and you will be well. So Saul said to his servants, Provide for me a man who can play well and bring him to me. One of the young men answered, Behold, I have seen a son of Jesse the Bethlehemite, in fact, King David. Uh, go down to verse 19. Saul sent messengers to Jesse and said, Send me David, blah, blah, blah. Uh, and then go down into verse 21. And David came to Saul, entered his service. Saul loved him greatly, and he became his armour-bearer. Verse 23. Whenever the evil spirit from God was upon Saul, David took the lyre and played it with his hand. So Saul was refreshed and was well, and the evil spirit departed from him. Always came back. Always came back. But the situation here is quite simply that when this demon was giving Saul jip, all right, it seemed that music, music helped. 
<laughs> you see. So presumably, if music, if music helped him and took the torment away, so he was joining his music. And believe me, you couldn't. There's only one way you can torment me when I'm listening to Dave Sanborn, and that's turn him off. <laughs> you see. Uh, you know. So the point is that music seemed to bring some relief. So off the evil spirit went, but came back immediately afterwards. Let me say as well, there's nothing to assume that because someone is demonised, the demon is literally in them 24 hours a day. Maybe, but might not be. You know, if a demon has access, doesn't necessarily mean it's there all the time. Perhaps some of them are, but not necessarily. Here we see one. Saul is demonised, he's out of fellowship with God, but this demon is coming and going. So that might well be the case with other people with demons. Who knows? Um, you know, but certainly what we've got here um, is that, um, you know, sort of like Saul here, he's out of fellowship with God, and uh, he is now ending up in a demonized situation. So King Saul was an out of, out of fellowship, spirit-filled, demonized believer. That was his status. And dangers could happen to anyone. Now we've seen it's not a definite that it's gonna happen, but it could. Um, you know, but having said that, I wouldn't want people to think, oh right now I've really got to start being obedient to law because I don't want to get any evil spirits. Wilt's be being obedient to law because he wants us to be obedient to him. Can you see what I mean? This isn't just an evil spirit prevention course I'm doing. You know, this is, it's, you know. So there's an example. Uh, now, bearing what we've read about King Saul very much in mind, go into Matthew 18. You've heard of crime prevention. Well, a whole new meaning here tonight, demon prevention. Matthew, get your demons here. Right, Matthew, Matthew we want, Matthew 18. Now, I'm only turning to Matthew 18 because of the scriptures we've already seen. Um, Matthew 18, verse 34. Now, the context of the verse that we want here is uh, that Jesus has told, he's talking here about forgiving. If God has forgiven us, we must forgive each other. The reason being, it doesn't matter. The, the worst possible thing you could do against me by way of a sin is nothing compared to my sin against God, right? That's what Jesus is saying. So we must forgive each other. And he tells a parable, all right? And the parable is basically about someone who owes, owes the king millions of pounds, a humongously horrendous amount of money that it would not be possible for anyone to pay. I mean, John Paul Getty would have been, you know, down the nationwide asking if he could have a personal loan, can you see? It's a ridiculous amount of money that there's not a hope that anyone could pay, all right? And the king forgives him his debt. He says, no, I've wiped it out, mate. No problem, you don't owe me nothing. On you go, all right? God's forgiveness. But this servant of the king, he then goes out and he collars someone and demands the 10 bob they owe him, see? Now, the result of that is that he's dragged back before the king, and the king says, right, you wouldn't forgive them their debt of ten bob to you. Right, now you owe me again. I've reinstated your debt. And remember, Jesus said, if we don't forgive each other our sins against the, if, if I don't forgive your sins against me, God won't forgive my sins against him, you see. So what we've got here again, we've got someone out of fellowship with God because they're out of fellowship with other people. It's a bitterness, unforgiveness thing. Now, Look what Jesus says as he winds the parable up in verse 34. We'll start from verse 32. Then the Lord summoned him and said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you besought me. And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger 
his lord delivered him to the jailers till he should pay all his debt. Only it's not jailers in the Greek. The Greek word there is torturers or tormentors. Tormentors. Now, I'm, gonna, I'm not going to be 100% dogmatic about this. You must make your own mind up. But I believe here that the tormentors, here is a reference when you fit this in with the other scriptures we've seen, that if you get out of fellowship with God, you are going to be handed over to Satan in one way or another. Paul spoke about handing two people over to Satan so they'd learn not to blaspheme. And do you remember Peter, good old Peter, when he needed sorting out, Jesus said, look, Satan has demanded to sift you like wheat and I've given him the okay. Can you see? So when people are out of fellowship, there is a sense in which God actually uses Satan and evil spirits to do a work in them, to bring them through. And it could just be that here Jesus is referring to the danger that if you get out of fellowship in this way, then you could well end up demonised, i.e. tormented by a demon. So I'm putting that one down as a possibility. The other two things, the Ephesians bit we've seen, the one Samuel, I'm being totally dogmatic about them, they speak for themselves. This one, I think, is the same thing, all right? I think it's a, a confirming scripture, but I leave that to you. I won't be 100% dogmatic. But what we've seen is this. We're asking the question, how do demons get inside people then, all right? And I've said the Bible does not give us a full systematic answer to it, but it gives us hints. And hint number one, all right, is, and we've, we've simply been talking about spirit-filled Christians. We haven't been talking about unbelievers. I can't say, you know, say very much about them at all, because the, 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 these bits are all talking about believers, all right? But we've seen the possibility that if believers get out of fellowship, then they are in danger of ending up demonised or ending up with a demon or demons inside them, okay? So, undealt with sin is enough to open the door to possible demonization, to demonic infiltration and intrusion in your life. Not necessarily, I emphasize that, we're talking a possibility is there. But in saying there's a possibility, let's not thereby think, oh, well, of course, then it doesn't happen. It does happen. It's a possibility. So what I'm saying is there are no hard and fast rules here, i.e., if you're talking with someone, uh, who's a Christian, or say, I mean, say you come and have a chat with me and you say, well, no, look, you know, actually, I've got to say, I have been out of fellowship for ages. I mean, you know, I've, 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 I've really had problems, I've been really bitter against this person, you know, ever since the fellowship started. Can't stand them, hate them, you know, but now I want to put it right. I would not assume, oh, well, let's deal with the demon then. It's not automatic, but I'm saying it's a possibility, and the Bible says it's a possibility. So, number one, all right, by way of answering this question. Number two, and this actually raises more questions than it answers, but I, I've got to do it because the Bible does it. We know from the Bible that children can be demonized. All right? Uh, go to Matthew 17. <coughs> now, as we look at this, I'm, I'm going to deal with one of the sort of like mystery, mystery bits in the Bible. Um, Matthew 17, verse 18. Um, let's, let's, let's start reading um, from verse 14. Um, 
When they came to the crowd, a man came up to him, i.e. Jesus, and kneeling before him said, Lord, have mercy on my son, for he is an epileptic and he suffers terribly, for often he falls into the fire and often into the water. And I brought him to your disciples and they could not heal him. And Jesus answered, O faithless and perverse generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him here to me. And Jesus rebuked him and the demon came out of him and the boy was cured instantly. So, boy, we had son, but boy, this is a little boy here. Um, then the disciples came to Jesus privately and said, why could we not cast it out? He said to them, because of your little faith, for truly I say to you, if you have faith the size of a grain of mustard seed, you'll say to this mountain, move hence to yonder place, and it will move, and nothing will be impossible to you. But this kind never comes out except by prayer and fasting. Now, the first thing I want to deal with there, we've established that this is a boy, all right? Now, <coughs> you've got here that the father comes and he says, have mercy on my son, for he is an epileptic and he suffers terribly, for often he falls into fire and into the water. He has these fits. But the point that I want to bring out here, epileptic is a very bad translation here, all right? Epilepsy is an illness, all right? The word here in the Greek is seleniazo, alright? Now it's the word we get, it means to be moonstruck. Selen is the Greek word for the moon, and it means to be moonstruck. Now the modern word here that would be far better than epilepsy is lunatic or madness. It's got that, the AV, right. So that what we've got here isn't epilepsy. Um, I mean, sort of like, if someone says epilepsy is, is, you know, it means that someone has got demons, they're taking it from this bit, and no, that's wrong. I mean, obviously, if someone has demons and the demons are causing fits and stuff like that, it might look like epilepsy, but believe me, epilepsy exists as an illness quite apart from demonization, and we'll be going in, into that sort of area uh, in a later study. But what we've got here, lunatic or, or madness, would be a better translation. But let me say as well, there is lunacy and madness which are caused by factors other than demons. But the point is, here was a little boy and the effect that the demon was having on him rendered him virtually a lunatic, mad, all right. You know, a crazy, well, now if I use the word crazy kid, we use that of normal kids, don't we? This boy was crazy, he was having fits, he was a totally abnormal boy and the father was well aware, as were the disciples and Jesus, that it was a condition because the boy had evil spirits in him. Now, I want to go over to Mark and have a look at the Mark account. I don't know if anyone's spotted the mystery bit yet, but uh, I'll, I'll bring it out now. The Mark account, Mark chapter 9, and we'll start from verse 14. Remember, it's exactly the same story, but this is Mark's account, so he brings out slightly different details in it. Mark chapter 9 and verse 14. And we read this. And when they came to the disciples, incidentally, Jesus uh, has been up on the Mount of Transfiguration with James, Peter, James, and John, and Elijah and Moses were, were there and that. They've come down from the mountain. Um, when they came to the disciples, i.e., the rest of them, the rest of the disciples, they saw a great crowd about them and scribes arguing with them. And immediately all the crowd, when they saw him, were greatly amazed and ran to him and greeted him. Uh, just bear <coughs> in mind the scribes were there. 
these were kind of top knob Jews up there with the not Pharisees, but up there with them. All right, and immediately all the crowd, when they saw him, were greatly amazed and ran up to him and greeted him. And he asked them, "What are you discussing?" And one of the crowd answered him, "Teacher, I brought my son to you, for he has a dumb spirit." So also we now discover this boy couldn't speak either. He was, as we're going to see, a you know, a mute. And wherever it seizes him, it dashes him down and he foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. I suppose you can understand why people think, oh yes, epilepsy therefore is a demonic thing. But there are various things that can have this effect on people. Um, you know, I find a lot of pop music does it to me. Um, and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. Um, there are quite a few a few Bible teachers that do it to me as well. No, no, I forget, I said, naughty, smack. Um, and, and I asked your disciples to cast it out, and they were not able to. And he answered them, O oh, faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him to me. Gee, you know, he was cross with them. Jesus was cross with them. They couldn't cast this thing out. And when they brought the boy to him, they brought the boy to him, and when the spirit saw him, immediately it convulsed the boy, and he fell to the ground and rolled around, foaming at the mouth. Pentecostal. Oh, oh. And, and Jesus asked his father, how long has he had this? And he said, from childhood. And it has often cast him into the fire and into the water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have pity on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, if you can, uh, no, and Jesus said to him, if you can, all things are possible to him who believes. Immediately the father of the child cried out and said, I believe, help my unbelief. And when Jesus saw that a crowd came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to him, you dumb and deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. Now, we saw uh, in last, last time's study, this is the only occasion in the entire Bible when Jesus or anyone addressed an evil spirit as anything other than an evil spirit or an unclean spirit. All right? And here, Jesus calls it a deaf and dumb spirit because that was the effect. Apart from making the boy seem that he was mad, this demon would, the, you know, was deaf, the boy couldn't hear, and the boy couldn't <coughs> speak, all right? And Jesus addresses this deaf and dumb spirit, all right? Um, and, after, and after crying out and convulsing him terribly, it came out, and the boy was like a corpse, so most of them said he's dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up, and he arose. And when he had entered the house, his disciples asked him, Why could we not cast it out? And he said to them, This kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer and fasting. Now, let me say, first of all, this simply tells us that children can have evil spirits. And, you know, the point that this, this boy had had this evil spirit as long as his father could remember, virtually from the day he was born. So again, we simply chalk this up. Children can have evil spirits. They can be demonized, and it would appear virtually from birth. Um, absolutely nothing, nothing here to give us a reason. We don't know the reason. Uh, maybe the parents were in, in the occult. Maybe, maybe not, I don't know. It doesn't give a reason, so we must resist the temptation to try and work out what the reason was. We simply know from this that children can be demonized. <coughs> now, the mystery bit here, all right, um, is simply that why does Jesus bring in this thing? 
You see, the disciples have been trying to cast this demon out. They've had success with other demons, but this one they're having trouble with. Jesus comes to find them doing what he commanded them. He had given them power over unclean spirits earlier. They had cast demons out of people before. And now they were up against the demon that they could do nothing about. And Jesus was a bit cross. He says, you know, look, why aren't you believing? Why aren't you believing what I've said? I've given you power over these things. Why aren't you believing that? So why does Jesus then say that this kind only comes out by prayer and fasting? Now, the oddity is this. The Bible teaches that we cast evil spirits out, not pray them out. We cast them out. Now, why is this thing here that this kind only comes out by prayer and fasting? Right, now, again, I'm going to put to you what I believe is the explanation, and you've got to ask yourself, does it fit? If you don't think it doesn't, reject it. It'll have to be a mystery still. For me, it's not. I think I've solved it. And it's quite simply this. Notice the scribes were around. Notice that Jesus, and this is the only time it's recorded he or anyone else ever did it, he referred to it as a deaf and dumb spirit rather than just an evil spirit. All right. Now, let me cast your minds back when we did the tradition series, what we saw about messianic miracles. Remember, and this is pertinent to what we're seeing, the Pharisees and the Jews at the time taught evil spirits had names. In order to cast an evil spirit out of someone, you had to establish its name, you had to talk to it, find out what its name was, and then cast it out using its name. And we've seen that that just, you know, you don't talk to evil spirits, you, you just tell them. You don't get into conversations, you don't ask them their names or anything like that, okay? But of course, the problem that the Jews had is what do you do with an evil spirit that won't talk to you, that is dumb, refuses to speak? They couldn't cast spirits out that wouldn't speak to them, dumb spirits. They couldn't do it. So they designated dumb spirits to be messianic miracles, i.e. they said, we can't cast demons like that out, but, when's, but Messiah will be able to. Now, Jesus had already given the disciples carte blanche authority as Christians over evil spirits, whatever shape or form they were. But here's the point. I th you see, the disciples, though they were now following Jesus, they were still influenced by the false teaching they'd had before. They'd been taught from children that you cannot cast out a spirit that won't speak to you. Right? And here, they've crumbled before that false teaching. Can you see? They're coming against this spirit, but because the spirit won't answer them, in their heart they're thinking, oh no, we can't, you know, have to leave this to Jesus. We have no authority to cast this type of spirit out. And that was unbelief. They'd been given carte blanche authority. Now, because the spirit knew that they weren't in faith, it ignored them. Can you see? There was no authority in what they were saying. They weren't trusting the authority that Jesus gave them. So therefore, they're coming against this spirit out of fellowship with the Lord on it. Can you see? The spirit just ignores them doesn't do a thing, just sits there looking at them and chucks the boy around a bit more for effect. So therefore, what's the problem here? The problem here is that the disciples are caving into false teaching as opposed to what Jesus has taught them. It's unbelief. And I think that when Jesus talks about this kind comes out only by prayer and fasting, the prayer and fasting was for the disciples' benefit to get their faith sorted out on this one. Is he? 
It wasn't that these evil spirits only come out by prayer and fasting. Evil spirits come out when you authoritatively, believingly, in the name of Jesus, tell them to. The disciples weren't doing that. They were helpless before this type of spirit. And so the prayer and fasting was for their benefit, not for the evil spirit's benefit. Can you see? So Jesus just cast it out, which they could have done from the word go if they'd believed. But they suddenly thought, oh no, Jesus hasn't authorised us for this sort. It's a messianic one, best leave it to him. So they'd been deceived by Satan, false teaching got the better of them. The prayer and fasting was for their benefit, that their faith, i.e. they needed to get more in faith, they needed to get more from the Lord, that certainty of authority over the demons, before they could be effective in a situation like that, okay. Um, you know, so, so back to the thing children have demons, how come children have demons? We don't know. We just know that children can have demons. The Bible doesn't tell us. <coughs> I suppose being born into an already demonised family might be on the cast. That might have something to do with it, but it might not. I can't be definite. That would be speculation. But we simply know, all right, that, um, you know, children can be demonised. Incidentally, when Jesus casts his spirit out, he says, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. This is also the only instance in the Bible of an evil spirit when being cast out, being forbidden to return. Now, why is that? Well, it's because when it's an adult, I mean, like, if you've got a demon, or I've got a demon, all right, and, 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 and the thing gets cast out, well, if I stay in fellowship with God and I've shut the door on it, it can't get back in anyway. So, I mean, why bother to saying, don't come back again? It can if it wants, but it can only get in if I'm out of fellowship with God. But, so why does Jesus now forbid it to return? It's because it's a little boy. The child is not accountable before God morally. Can you see the point? So that is why there's this exceptional, and I forbid you to return to this boy. That's what Jesus said to the spirit. But it is not normal practice. When you kick a demon out, you don't send it anywhere. You don't, you don't tell it to go anywhere. You don't tell it not to go anywhere. And in a few studies time, we'll be looking at the question, where do they go when they are cast out? And that'll be a goodie. All right, but you'll have to wait a few weeks for that. Um, you know, so, so again, we know here that children have demons, can have demons, but we don't know how. Last point, last point, or last example, and, and this is the extent of the biblical data. Go to Luke 13, Luke chapter 13. <coughs> and we want, first of all, verse 10. Um, Luke 13, 10, now Jesus was teaching in one of the synagogues on the Sabbath and there was a woman who had had a spirit of infirmity for 18 years. She was bent over and could not fully straighten herself and when Jesus saw her, he called her and said to her, woman, you are freed from your infirmity and he laid his hands upon her and immediately she was made straight and she praised God. Go down into verse 16. Uh, Jesus is now arguing with the Pharisees. They said, look, you shouldn't do this on the Sabbath. And Jesus says, rubbish. And uh, like he says, you hypocrites, does not each of you on the Sabbath untie his ox, blah, blah, blah. Verse 16, ought not this woman, a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan has bound for 18 years, be loose from this bond on the Sabbath day? That tells us two things. This woman, she'd had this evil spirit for 18 years, all right? And this evil spirit had a physical effect on her. It looked like she was simply had a, you know, it looked like it was purely a physical problem. In 999 out of a thousand cases, that's exactly what it would have been. But with this woman, it was an evil spirit. 
doing it, all right? And Jesus knew that. She'd had it for 18 years, all right? Jesus cast the spirit up, so her body was free, uh, cast the spirit out. And we're not saying, notice as well, sickness is totally separate in the Bible from demonization. Any thought that, 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 that sickness is caused by demons, no. Sickness is caused by, you know, a demon might be able to bring sickness on you, but it doesn't mean that someone who's ill is demonised, all right? But in this case, a physical problem was caused by a demon. And notice that Jesus calls her a daughter of Abraham. That was Jesus' way of saying she was a believer. Not any old Jewish lady, this one, she was a follower of Jesus. She was a believer. Now, I want you to notice, there's nothing here, there's no repentance that Jesus led her into. She just had this spirit of infirmity. She just had this demon that was doing it to her. And Jesus just cast it out. She was a believer, but she had it anyway, but Jesus cast it out. All right? How did she get it? We're not told. We'll never know. Probably never know how, you know, why most people have got their demons. What does it matter? The Bible tells us not to concern ourselves with how they got in there, but if they are in there, to get rid of them. It's as simple as that. Now then, where you have demonization, and it is clear that the demons entered because of sin, all right, that it was sin that gave the entry point, and there are times when that can be clear, all right. When that is the case, I mean, it might be occultism, for instance, but I'm not saying that everyone who's involved in the occult is demonised. That would be silly. There are loads and loads of people in the occult who are, you know, in the same way that you get loads and loads of Christians and they say, I've never seen a miracle. Believe me, there are millions and millions of spiritualists across the world who say, well, I've never actually seen a spirit materialise yet. You see, and they've not had anything supernatural happen to them. They're not necessarily demonised. But whatever, if it's known, if it's clear that a particular sin was the cause of the demon getting in, then the thing to realise is this, it's the sin that's the problem. It's never the demon that's the problem, it's the sin that is the problem. The demon is merely a jacket hanging on a coat hanger. The sin is the coat hanger in the wardrobe. You get rid of the coat hanger, well, I mean, that takes care of the demon. But can you see what I mean? Often, in a situation like that, I mean, <laughs> yeah, they can be gone. <laughs> you, you go to cast them out, they've already gone. Not always. If they haven't gone, kick them out. You know, but in an instance like that, it's the sin that is the problem, all right? Kicking the demon out in such circumstances is, is merely a technicality. So in raising the question, how do demons get inside people then? I've given you what it seems to me is the limit how far we can go with the biblical data that we've got. In many, many cases, possibly the vast majority, will not know how the demons got in. It won't matter that we don't know how the demons got in. The important thing is to get them out. That's what the Bible concentrates on. But we have seen the possibility, particularly in the lives of believers who get out of fellowship, the possibility that that can cause demonic infiltration. When that happens, it's the coat hanger, the sin, that is the problem. When that's repented of, as a, when you throw the coat hanger out of the wardrobe, well, I mean, whatever's hanging on it is not going to present you with any great problem. Okay. Now, and also we've seen children can be demonised and various things like that. Now, having covered that lot, next time we, we, we move on to the first of what are going to be three talks which will answer the question, and these are the big questions. How do you know if someone's got demons?
Once established that someone's got demons, what do you do to get them out? So, see you next week.